Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39 reads, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, um, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which we, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, per and preserve their souls. Um, let's pray. God, there's a lot of weighty um, topics and themes in this passage. Um, God, I pray that in the time we have, um, what we're able to cover, um, may it serve. Um, may it serve to empower us um, to persevere and to live lives that are all about you and all for you. Uh, may you speak, God. You are speaking. So may you give us ears to hear and a heart that's willing to live according to your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
And so last week, if you were here, we looked at the practical implications um, of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Um, we answered the question, if we have been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus, what does it mean for us? How do we benefit from the death and resurrection of Jesus? We were reminded that because of Jesus' one for all sacrifice for our sins, um, we can, number one, draw near to God. We must hold on to what we believe, and we have the privilege of encountering one another in community. This week, we will study the last of five warning passages found in the book of Hebrews. These warning passages warn us of the severe consequences of a life lived outside of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The writer behind Hebrews, what he wants to do in the remaining um, verses of chapter 10 um, is to not only show us um, that Jesus is better, but what he wants to do right here is to urge us to, uh, to not abandon Jesus, um, but to keep on persevering and following Jesus no matter um, what life brings. He wants us um, to persevere in our Christian faith. And so the question we have to ask is, well, how can we persevere as Christians living in a culture that's becoming more and more godless? And so if you're making note, the first thing that will help us persevere in our faith is, number one, a warning of judgment. A warning of judgment. Look at verse 6. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We've spent the last few weeks mostly looking at the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Um, this was when the people of Israel were required to sacrifice animals to atone for or make amends for their sins. If you sinned, you would sacrifice an animal in order to avoid punishment. That animal would take the punishment you deserved. But the death of Jesus and his resurrection changed everything. His death was enough to atone for the sins of those who trust him as their Lord and Savior. Although Jesus' sacrifice is enough to atone for the sins of all people, not everyone gets to benefit. Not everyone will benefit from this amazing gift. Sadly, there are some who will not benefit from the sacrifice of Jesus. And so the question is, who are these people? And why will they miss out on the amazing benefits of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice? These people are described in verse 26 as those who, if you want to read it, go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The Greek word, for deliberate is hekosios, okay? Didn't pronounce it right, but whatever. Let's move on. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> that was cheesy, but I couldn't help it. 
That's that Greek word. George Garfrey explains that this adverb communicates, this adverb, deliberate, right, in Greek, communicates the idea of a willing participation in an action. And so in this context, it refers to a person who willingly participates in a sinful, in a lifestyle of sin. It's possible right now that some of you are thinking, this seems to be talking about me. I'm a Christian, but I'm a sinner. And most of the time when I sin, it's deliberate. It's intentional. If this is what you're thinking, let me do this. Let me ease your worries with an explanation of what this is actually talking about. We're all guilty of ongoing of an ongoing lifestyle of sinning, okay? But the deliberate sin being talked about here is different. In this context, to go on sinning deliberately isn't a reference to our natural proclivity as Christians to sin, but to go on sinning deliberately in this verse has to do with an ongoing rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Adam Clark says it this way. It has nothing to do with backsliders in our common use of the term. A man may be overtaken in a fault, or he may deliberately go into sin, and yet neither renounce the gospel nor deny the Lord that brought him, that bought him. And so what the author has in mind um, is a deliberate, sinful lifestyle of high-handed rebellion against the gospel. This means that these people have made an informed decision to reject Jesus, and their rejection isn't based on ignorance or misinformation, and the reason why we know that is that verse 6 says that they reject Jesus after receiving the knowledge of the truth. They're very much aware of who Jesus is and what he's done, but they choose to reject him anyway. John Calvin says this. <laughs> oh, this morning, get ready, okay? It's a tough one, but we're going to get through it by God's grace. John Calvin says this, The apostle describes as sinners, not those who fall in any kind of sin, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There is a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind which makes for a total falling from the grace of Christ. And so they're the people that totally reject Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what are the consequences of intentionally rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look back at verse 26. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, here it is, first consequence, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. The meaning behind the phrase, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, can be summed up in this way. 
If Jesus' sacrifice for sin is rejected, there remains no other sacrifice that is capable of dealing with sin that makes a person righteous before God. If there remains no other sacrifice for sin for those who reject Jesus, then the only outcome is, look at verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If language like this makes you uncomfortable, it makes sense because it's a gripping expression of judgment. The point here is that those who reject Christ invite a fearful expectation of judgment whether they believe it or not. And I say that because the whole idea of like judgment day, Hollywood has just ruined it. Okay? They've made it comical. But what the Bible says, we're a church that believes in the authority of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. We believe what Scripture says. And Scripture talks about a day that is coming where God will judge. The author of Hebrews, what he does now is that he turns to the Old Testament to help us better understand just how serious the consequences are for rejecting Christ. And he does use this using what is known as the, um, the argument from lesser to greater. Okay? Um, he begins with the lesser. Look at verse 28. He says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's basically talking about, look, if back in the Old Testament times, there was this law where if you broke the law and you got found out and there were two witnesses, two people that said, look, I saw him sin, right? The only outcome, the definite certainty outcome is that you would be put to death. And the author of Hebrews brings this up, not just to remind his audience of something that they're familiar with, but he brings this up to help them see that death which was the result of breaking the law of Moses, is a lesser punishment than intentionally rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. He says, look, if like you died when you broke the law of Moses, and two people witnessed this, look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot a son of God and has profaned the gospel of the covenant by which was sanctified, but he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. And so the punishment for rejecting Jesus as the Lord and Savior is much greater than the punishment for breaking the law of Moses. Verse 29 doesn't only help us realize that the punishment for rejecting Jesus is greater than the punishment for breaking the law, but it also includes a profile of those who have chosen to resist and reject Christ. Look at verse 29 again. First, who are these people? They, it says that they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. 
to trample someone underfoot back then was a metaphor used in both classical literature and Greek Old Testament as an image of utter disdain. It was one of the most offensive things you could say to someone. And so to trample something underfoot is to treat whoever that person is as completely worthless. This means that the person who is on, who rejects or denies that Jesus is the Son of God, okay, is trampling underfoot the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This means that the atheist who's on a mission to argue against and disprove the divinity of Jesus is trampling underfoot the Son of God. This also means that your hard-working co-worker who is indifferent to the gospel is an example of someone who's showing utter disdain for Jesus Christ. Stephen J. Cole says, to treat this exalted son of God like a bug under one's foot is an indescribably horrific sin. Second, these people have profaned the blood of the covenant. Profaned the blood of the covenant. In recent weeks, we've seen how the blood of Jesus, that is his death, is superior to the blood of animals. The blood of Jesus is what makes a person right, just before God. And to profane the blood of the covenant is to do this, is to despise Jesus' death on the cross and view it as though it was meaningless. Christianity is a bloody religion. And it's a bloody religion because what we celebrate and glory in is the death of our King and our Savior and our Founder. But the reason why we celebrate his death is because three days later, he rose again and he had victory over death. And so the skeptic who insists that Jesus never died on the cross as the Bible claims is living a life that profanes, that shows and despises the blood and the death of Jesus Christ. This also means that your super nice and hospitable neighbor who likes you and respects you but wants nothing to do with Jesus is an example of someone who profanes the blood of the covenant. They view the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus as meaningless. Lastly, um, these people who reject Jesus and his sacrifice have outraged the spirit of grace. Outraged the spirit of grace. Imagine a homeless man covered in wounds, clothed in tattered clothes, living without shelter in downtown Los Angeles, um, in downtown San Diego. 
like so many homeless people, he's there because of, you know, his own sinful and unwise decisions. One day, a kind and generous man offers to take this man to the hospital, pay for his medical bills, and this man promises to give this homeless man everything that he needs to turn his life around. This includes an apartment, rent-free, groceries, rehab, therapy, whatever he needs. But imagine if this homeless man responds to this man by saying, no, thank you. And then spits in his face, curses at him, and then tells everyone else that this man's offer is worthless. Imagine that. This is a weak and insufficient illustration for what it's like for people to outrage and insult the Holy Spirit. To turn your back on the amazing grace the Holy Spirit offers through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's like that homeless man turning around and insulting the kind and generous man that wanted to help him. For a guilty sinner to spit in God's face when his spirit, God's spirit, offers free pardon made possible through the death of Jesus is simply outrageous. And what awaits such a person, the person who, um, who insults God's spirit, a person who um, profanes the blood of the covenant, the person who tramples on the Son of God, um, what awaits such a person is God's terrifying judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. And so to drive home the terror of God's judgment, um, the author of Hebrews quotes two sentences from the um, Song of Moses found in Deuteronomy 32. And then he concludes with this sobering, sobering word. He says, look at verse 31. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I was studying this with a group of guys this week, and one of them says, this has to be one of the most frightening verses in all of the Bible. To fall into the hands of the living God speaks both of God's power, but it also speaks of the impossibility of escaping from his judgment. And so to apply it to our topic at hand, what this means is that there is no escape from the terrors of God's judgment for those who have spent their entire lives rejecting Jesus as the king of their lives. The reality is that anyone you know who has made a decision to reject Jesus 
is destined for the terrors of God's impending judgment. No matter who they are, no matter how influential they are, no matter how nice they are, no matter how moral they are, even if they agree with your political convictions, even if right, they, 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 you like them or anything like that, the reality is that if they have chosen to reject Jesus as the king of their life, then what awaits them is God's terrifying future judgment. And so the question we have to ask right now in a room of this size is like, what's the appropriate response to this? How should you respond to this morning? It depends on who you are, where you are. If you're a Christian, and by God's grace, you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, how you should respond to this is with gratitude. Of God, thank you. Thank you. And your other response should also be an overwhelming desire to see the lost saved. I get frustrated with myself. I, 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 we have neighbors and friends that are not saved, and, and I've become so familiar with them. I've become so comfortable with the fact that they're not saved. I really have, and I think we as Christians need to be uncomfortable with our friends and co-workers and relatives that are not saved. When we're around them, there should be a sense of uncomfortability, not just because we might say something that might offend them, but we should be uncomfortable because as far as we're concerned and as far as God's Word says, their destiny is total destruction and judgment. So that's how we should respond as Christians. Um, the next group of people is that if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is a description of, 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 of what, what, who you are and what you're doing. You, by rejecting Jesus, um, you are um, <laughs> trampling on him and disrespecting him and denying him and all of that. And if you continue to reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, it's saying that you are destined for the wrath of God. The storm of God's judgment is on its way, and the only way you'll be pardoned is if you trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. And I would plead with you, Today, this morning, right now, call out to Jesus and cry out to Jesus. Look at Jesus and see just how beautiful and majestic he is and how he went above and beyond and laid down his life so that you can have life and have a right relationship with God. And so I plead with you to surrender your life to Jesus. And so we've seen a warning of judgment. The second thing that will help us persevere in our faith is an encouragement from the past. An encouragement from the past. 
And so after warning his readers about devastating consequences of rejecting Jesus, um, the author of Hebrews, what he does now is he now encourages his readers to remember. And he wants them to look back and remember their faithfulness to Jesus, even in the midst of what he describes in verse 32 as a hard struggle with sufferings. Question we have to ask is, how exactly have they suffered? What kind of suffering have they been able to endure? Look at verse 32 and 33. It says, But recall the former days um, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. First, um, they were at times publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. In those days, when someone from a strong Jewish family became a Christian, um, he often was made a spectacle. He was ridiculed and rejected by all of his friends and family. He suffered by being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Good old Charles Spurgeon says this, The early Christians had to suffer for their faith. They were exposed to great ridicule and enmity. They were indeed the byword, the laughingstock, and the derision of all mankind. The second way they suffered was that they were partners with those who suffered. Verse 33 says that. What does this mean? It means that even when they weren't experiencing suffering themselves, they felt the pain of those who were. Especially those who were in prison. Beginning of verse 34 says to us, Look at Douglas Moose says this, even when members were not being abused themselves, they suffered the emotional trauma of standing with those who were mistreated. This coming week, I know for sure, I'm not a prophet or anything, yeah? I know for sure that your life will not be in any danger whatsoever because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. It's likely that you will not once fear for your safety because of Jesus. Anything could happen, but it's highly likely that you're not going to fear for your safety because of Jesus. But the reality is, Around the world, there are other Christians, our brothers and sisters, who are having to endure extreme suffering because of their association with Jesus. In just the last year, there have been over 360 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Nearly 6,000 Christians um, were killed for their faith. 5,000 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. Nearly 5,000 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or um, imprisoned. 
Our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world are suffering intense persecution as we sit here in San Diego in this lovely venue. So my question is, when you're exposed to statistics like this and stories of the persecuted church, what's your response like? How do you respond? Have you become so familiar and numb and desensitized to it all, it just no longer moves you? And when I say move you, I'm not just saying like, a, oh yeah, you know, I heard and gosh, I feel sorry for them emotionally. I'm saying like when we hear of our brothers and sisters who are suffering and persecuted for Jesus, the natural response should be God like uh, for us to just dive on our knees and pray that God would deliver them or help them endure. That should be the response, not oh, um, that's another story, that's another statistic. We need to pray and work on partnering and sharing with those who are suffering. The third way they suffered was that they lost their possessions. Because of their allegiance to Jesus, their homes were invaded um, by vandals, and robbers were determined to expose them to every possible discomfort and ridicule. And so how did they respond to all of this, all this persecution? Look at verse 34 again. It's crazy. 34 again, it says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's crazy, right? They are being persecuted. They are losing everything because of Jesus. And how do they respond? They respond with joy. <laughs> they accepted it with joy. It's crazy. And the question is, why did they respond in this way? Look again at verse 34. It says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, they rejoiced in the middle of persecution because they knew that better and abiding possessions were promised to them. So the question is, what is this better possession? What is it? I'll give you the answer. Is everything they had because of their union with Christ. Like forgiveness of sins. Like the gift of the Holy Spirit like membership, you know, in the body of Christ, like the ability God gives to obey his will, like eternal life, etc., etc. If you take time to understand what are the fruits or what we get from as a result of being united with Christ, you, you, it would blow your mind. I go online, okay, this week and search in Google benefits of union with Christ and you will see a whole list of what we receive as a result of being united with Christ. These are spiritual treasures we have that cannot be taken from us. Raymond Brown says this, in a society obsessed by the lust of, for possessions in which people have never had so much 
are hungry. Um, people who have never had so much are hungry for more. The Christian rejoices in what he has in Christ. The spiritual treasures which can never be taken away. And so we've seen a warning of judgment and encouragement from the past. The last thing we're going to look at to help us persevere is a plea to repent. A plea to repent. The author of Hebrews concludes this chapter, chapter 10, by encouraging believers to not back down from a public profession of faith in Jesus, but to live by faith. He then expresses his utmost confidence that the community of Jesus' followers he's writing to are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and, pers and preserve their souls. Look at verse 39. He says, look, but we are, okay, you guys, we are, you, who I'm writing to, are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, he is confident that they will not shrink back in their faith, and as a result, they'll prove their allegiance to Jesus Christ until their very end. The warning passages, and there's five of them in Hebrews, they exist especially this one, to keep us from spiritual complacency. Jonathan Edwards was a great American preacher of the 18th century. He was a gifted communicator and preacher and preached thousands of sermons. One of his most well-known sermons is titled, Wait for it. If you don't know it, it's titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The preaching of this sermon was the catalyst for the first Great Awakening, which was a period in American history where spirituality and religious devotion were revived through the colonies. Here is a quote from this famous sermon. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dread dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. In many ways. The sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached around 250 years ago sounds a lot like the passage we've been looking at this morning in Hebrews, okay? And this is a snippet, snippet from his sermon, okay? 
at times, we need to be warned. These warnings should do one thing. They should cause us to look to Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. These warning passages should do one thing, and they should create in all of us a desire to know and worship the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews was confident that Jesus was a reality in the lives of his hearers, and so he encouraged them to persevere. But the warning is here for a reason. It's obvious that there were some who were sinning willfully and were soon to face the terrors of judgment. And if it's true for them, it must be true for us. If it's true for that community he was writing to, it's true for our community. It's likely that some of you have been rejecting Jesus. And as a result, as Jonathan Edwards said, the black clouds of God's wrath is now hanging directly over your head. But listen. Listen to me this morning, all right? Listen to me this morning. The terrors of judgment doesn't have to come upon you. God has provided a way of escape. Because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, you have an opportunity this morning to stop living for yourself and start living for Jesus. Why? Because he is worthy. He deserves all the praise, all the glory. He deserves your life. And I guarantee, I promise, if this morning there is something stirring in you that is saying, man, I am disconnected from Jesus. I am rejecting Jesus. And I really want to know Jesus. This morning, I guarantee, if you make a decision to worship and surrender to Jesus Christ, your life will be changed and you will see the majesty and the beauty of Jesus and he will consume you with grace that will blow your mind. Jonathan Edwards concludes his Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon in this way. He says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, many that were very lately in the same miserable conditions that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind at such a day to see so many others feasting while you are pining 
and perishing to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and how for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment without surrendering to Jesus Christ? And so this morning, I urge you, okay? I urge you, I plead with you to flee from the wrath to come and escape by repenting of your sins and embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Do it this very moment. Do it this very moment, for you may never have another opportunity. And so may God be gracious to you. May he grant you the grace to trust in Jesus. And may your soul remain restless until it finds its rest in Jesus. Let's pray. God, may your spirit work in such a way that we would all leave here, that even throughout this week, we would come to know and worship Jesus with our lives. In his name we pray, amen.